thing also, if we have young disciples in the room, uh, there are sermon guides on the back table so that you can follow along uh, both with the notes and as you color those pictures so that you can follow along with what we're talking about. Well, my name is James, and I'm one of the deacons here at Antioch, and it's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to me to Acts chapter 16. That's Acts chapter 16. Specifically, we're going to be taking a look at verses 22 through 34. The title of today's sermon is, What If He Were On Our Side? And we'll see that worked out in three ways. First, in verses 22 through 24, that the world resists the gospel. Then in verse 25, that the gospel first changes us. And then in verses 25 through 34, that the gospel changes the world through us. So as you turn there, if you're able, please stand with us as we read from God's word. That's Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 22. Church, hear the word of the Lord. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all still here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because they, he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household church. The Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Growing up, one of my favorite movies was always The Lion King. Do I have any Lion King fans in here? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the lion that they modeled Mufasa on was actually in a zoo nearby, and so we went and saw Mufasa in person uh, quite a bit. One of my favorite, as I was reading this passage, it called to mind a scene from The Lion King with Timon and Pumbaa. Timon and Pumbaa are going about their daily business and they see a flock of vultures gathered around. And they decide, like anyone else would, you know it'd be fun? Let's go chase and scare those vultures. So they do, but then the surprise is on them because as the vultures fly away, they see a lion, this young lion. And in the face of that discovery, they have a choice to make. On the one hand, Timon says, let's run away. He says, it's a lion, we gotta run, we gotta hide. And maybe, hopefully, the lion will go away or maybe the vultures will come back and take care of him. On the other hand, there's this option, maybe we should go ahead and kill him so that he won't be a threat to us later. 
But then finally, Pumbaa and Timon have an idea. First Pumbaa, then Timon. What if he were on our side? What if we raise him now to be on our side so that in the future he can protect us from other lions? And it's that idea that then sets in motion the rest of the story. Now, we just wrapped up our Antioch family series, and one of the things that all of our preachers mentioned is that our world today can seem very lionish. It's on the prowl for a family to devour, for young minds to deceive, and in the face of it, we have a similar decision to make. We can retreat to our Christian bubble and try to distance and insulate ourselves from the world so that it can't hurt us, so that we protect ourselves. Or, likewise, we could fight tooth and nail and try to wrest back control of institutions, the schools, the businesses, the political institutions, all the things that we seem to have lost. And often those two perspectives are what get the lion's share of the media. Uh, they're what people focus on. So much so that we forget that there is a third option. What if he were on our side? What if they were on our side? Nick Ripkin, a longtime IMB missionary and strategist in the Muslim world, puts it this way. Effective church leaders recognize that evangelism is their single greatest tool for survival. Evangelism is the answer to most of the problems and struggles they will potentially face. It's asking, what if he were on our side? And our passage today is a powerful illustration of just that. So as we come back to our text, earlier in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas have just entered into Greece. This is a new place for them. And they come to the city of Philippi, where they encounter an enslaved, demon-possessed woman who tells the future. And she was being financially exploited by her masters. Now, before we jump back into the passage, can we pause and have compassion on this woman? First off, she's enslaved. How did she get to be enslaved? Was she captured in war and taken from her family hundreds of miles away? Was she born into slavery? Does she know what freedom is like? Was she sold into slavery and grew up in poverty? We don't know. We can have compassion on her. And not only that, but then on top of it, she has this demon possession. Can you imagine the psychological anguish that goes on each and every day from that? And at the end of all of it, does she have a shoulder to cry on? No. Only two masters counting their money and saying, do it again. The injustice of it is enough to make your blood boil, isn't it? And it certainly was for Paul. Because he was being greatly distressed. Other translations might say angered, disturbed, or grieved. We see in verse 18, he turned to her, to the evil spirit, and said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And the spirit left her in that moment. We pick up today, starting in verse 19, with the aftermath of this miraculous exorcism. We read, starting in verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, do they care about the woman? No, they care about the money. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. I pause. Are any of those things true? No, they're not Jews, they're Christians. They are not causing the riot. That would be the slave owners who did that. And they're also not advocating any, anything illegal. This is a bold-faced lie on three fronts. 
This is exactly what Jesus talked about when he said in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when men shall insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil false things for my sake. We continue reading in verse 22. So the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So here, the lion bears his teeth, and he looks a lot more like Scar than Simba. Paul and Silas have struck a blow to Satan by kicking out one of his demons, by thwarting Satan's work, and Satan responds in turn. He has them stripped, slandered, beaten, flogged, and imprisoned. Literally, they threw them in prison and threw away the key. Now, we talk about persecution in the U.S. because of some objectionable library books, and we can be angry about that. But short of execution, this is about as bad as it gets, short of someone dying. And this leads to our first point, that the world resists the gospel. There's a saying that no good deed goes unpunished. And certainly that seems to be the case for Paul. After all, he did the right thing in setting this woman free, right? He did the right thing, but his only reward was beatings and humiliation and prison. It can feel the same way in the church today. On a cultural level, maybe we speak out against the evils of abortion, uh, of killing children in their mother's womb, and our world slanderously responds, are you going to take care of all those kids? And then when we do, when we lead the way in adoption, the world tries to shut down adoption centers. And that's not somewhere in California. That's here in Kentucky, Sunrise Children's Services. But we could also zoom in and look at it on an Antioch level. Here at Antioch, we know that those who are faithful with little will be given more, right? Chances are, if you've served in a ministry for very long, soon you'll be promoted to deacon. Um, and sure enough, we raise up leaders in order to fill those positions, to fill that work. And then as soon as we start to get into a rhythm, God calls them somewhere else. I understand the irony of that, uh, being someone uh, in that period of transition. And all the while, while these are challenges that we face as a church, each individual is also facing their own barrage from the enemy. He tempts us with rest and comfort to try to draw us off from the work. It's too hard. Come, find rest. Don't, you don't need to push yourself in that way. And then on top of that, simultaneously, he whispers two different lies to us. On the one hand, you're not enough to try to discourage us from trying. But then on the other hand, you'll never be enough. You're not doing enough so that we try harder. And both of them work to lure us into temptation. And when we seem to be doing well on those fronts, Satan throws temptations at us, the kind that are hard to see. Arrogance, bitterness, lust, indulgence, things that go on in the heart and that you can't hold accountable unless you tell someone. It relies on you. And then, if we're doing well on that count, he throws up obstacles. The car breaks down. The, your mother falls and breaks her hip. All of these things he throws up to try to draw you off from the work. And then, after all that, if we're still standing strong in the work, Satan plays dirty, and he'll go after our wives. He'll go after our kids and our families and our friends, anyone weaker in faith to draw us off from the work. And just like Paul and Silas, in the face of all of these schemes, we're presented with a choice. On the one hand, we may be tempted 
like Timon and Pumbaa, to retreat. We can imagine for Paul and Silas, them sitting in that jail cell, hanging next to each other, and saying, well, I guess they weren't ready to hear. Guess we better move on. Maybe God will work in them some other time. Here at Antioch, we might say, well, I tried to share the gospel with so-and-so at work, but he didn't seem interested. I guess God's just not working in him yet. Or, in the words of one of my fellow seminary students, why should we send missionaries somewhere where it will take them 10 years before they see their first convert when I can send them to a VBS and see 30 kids come to Christ in a week? We retreat from things because it's hard. Because we're under this delusion that it should be easy, that God's service in his kingdom should be easy. And when we do that, guess what? Satan wins. He's accomplished exactly what he wanted. You're no longer a threat. He's taken you out of the game. On the other hand, in our righteous indignation, and there's right to be indignant about some of the things we see going on in our world, in our righteous indignation, we double down and try to do things in our own strength. And in doing so, we run headlong into Satan's traps. It's like charging into a minefield of sin. In Paul's example, we might imagine that after they kick out the demon from this girl, they march down to the slave owner's house and they rough him up. And then they march down to the magistrate's office and say how wrong they were, they should never have allowed this, and call down fire and brimstone on them. And guess where that would have gotten Paul and Silas? Probably six feet under in a ditch. It would have stopped the ministry before it had even started. In our own church, what could that look like? Well, in a lot of ways, it could look like faithful ministry. It can look like faithful ministry day in and day out, but on the inside, to creeping sins of bitterness and self-righteousness. We pat ourselves on the back. Look how good I am at serving in this ministry. God surely sees this and will reward me for all of my hard work. And then we get bitter. Look at her. She's not serving in the nursery. Lazy. And once again, Satan wins. How? Because in attempting to do these things in our own strength, we run straight into the trap. The sins of self-righteousness and bitterness work their way into our hearts, and it fuels conflict within the church. In some ways, this is even more dangerous because it's something that happens on the inside. It's something that we don't see until it's too late. And if we don't correct course from that course of action, then the result can be not only that we uh, burn ourselves out, but that we also leave a trail of broken relationships in the wake. And that is a dangerous position. Either way, the world resists the gospel. Satan doesn't fight clean. He fights dirty. And if we're not careful, we can fall victim to his schemes. But I want to remind you guys that there is a third option, which is the what if he was on our side, the truth of the gospel. And this leads us to our second point today, that the gospel changes us. We see how Paul and Silas responded in the face of their persecution. So look with me again back at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. In the face of persecution, how did they respond? They were praying. They were singing. They were worshiping. And this is how they responded. They could have had the mindset of, woe is me, God, deliver me from this prison. They could have had the mindset of, those villains, God, curse them for their sin. But instead, we, f- we find them worshiping. Now, both of those reactions, the woe is me, 
and curse them for their sin, those are understandable positions. And I want to encourage you today, if you find yourself in the position of feeling that way, no matter what the the cause might have been, I want to encourage you, those are understandable positions to have because they reflect the fact that our world is not the way it's supposed to be. We live in a fallen world. That's a grievous thing, and it's okay to grieve. Whether that's through anger or through despair, we can take the time to grieve. And as Pastor Brad has mentioned before, we can do that through a posture of lament as we process those emotions with God. But we don't want to stay there indefinitely. One thing I want to encourage you is that God meets us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. And as we grieve, as we work through those things, there is a higher aim, and that aim is worship. This posture of worship in response to suffering is a theme that comes up over and over and over in the New Testament. Earlier in the book of Acts, when the apostles had just been beaten in Jerusalem for sharing the gospel, what did they do? They left the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And then James, Jesus' brother, would go on to tell us to count it all joy when you face trials and temptations of every kind that's upside down. It's counterintuitive. Rather than counting it as something bad to be saved from or counting it as something evil to be resisted, they looked at suffering as a blessing to be received with thanksgiving. That's crazy. How can they have that attitude? Paul explains, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Why? Because in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, the church. You see, our Savior was not a king resplendent in glory, kicking back on his throne. Rather, he came as a homeless refugee, slandered, rejected, beaten, humiliated, and wrongfully executed by his own people for the sake of his own people. Somehow, we've got it in our heads that when we talk about God's blessing and becoming like Christ, we think of the American dream. We think of a comfortable home, like heaven. We think of a harmonious family. We think of fun with friends. We think about all of those blessings of heaven now. And because of that, we ask God to grow us in faith, hoping that he'll give us those blessings now. Yet the irony of it is that we are most like Christ when we become that man of sorrows. We are most like Christ when we suffer. It's a brutal irony that we don't think about when we ask God to grow us in faith, and yet this is the tool that he uses. And this leads us to our second point this morning, that the gospel first must change us. Now, when I say that, we use the word gospel a lot in church, but often we don't take the time to explain what we mean by it. And as a result, according to some studies, only about 6% of American Christians know how to articulate the gospel. That's a tragedy. That's a big failure on our part. And so I want to first take the time to explain what we mean by the gospel and then to kind of illustrate how we can use that as we process our suffering. So first, just as a summary of the gospel, the word gospel means good news. And like any other news story, it's a story with a response. For example, when you watch the news and it tells you the story about snow coming uh, over the weekend, what's your response? Make, make sure you have salt. <laughs> Make sure you have that road salt. Uh, When the news tells you the story about a wreck on 264, what's your response? Reroute. You're going to go somewhere else. There's There's a story. 
with a response. And in the same way, the gospel is a story with a response. So what's that story? We can knock it or we can uh, outline it with four points. First, God created. God created each and every one of you in his image, each and every person in this world, uniquely in his image. He custom made you to reflect his glory in the world. And out of all his creations, he is most proud of the people made in his image. And he made a perfect world where they could flourish and do that, just that. But second, we sinned. Beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve, each and every one of us have rebelled against God. Through our words, through our actions, through our deeds, we were born into that rebellion, and we have continued that rebellion every time we sin. God gave us hands to be serving to others, but instead we use them to harm. God gave us tongues to give praise to God, but instead we give curses. God gave us families to love and cherish, but through our selfishness, instead we drive them apart. And God gave us his word to guide us and lead us, but instead we twist it and follow our own way instead. God has blessed us and we have spat it back in his face. And in so doing, we profane the image of God that he's made in us. We harm others made in the image of God. And worst of all, the guilt of our sins is why Jesus died. You may not have held the nail in your hand, but it was your sin that kept him up there on the cross. And every time we sin, we are revisiting the guilt of the death of the Son of God on us. We've got a problem. And in the face of that, the only right thing that God could do would be to punish you. But this leads us to our third point. Jesus saves. Rather than make you feel the weight of the wrath you deserve, God made a crazy decision to provide you with a way out. Jesus God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of God in human form to live the perfect life that you couldn't live and then to die the death that you deserved. But because he had never sinned, death had no hold on him. Three days later, he rose in the grave and to prove it, he showed himself to 500 people over the course of 40 days. So now, point four, we respond. You have a choice to make. Option A, Jesus offers you a new life. You can choose to abandon your old life of sin, trying to decide what's best for you, trying to earn your way to heaven, trying to earn your own blessing, and instead, you trust that Jesus is enough. You trust that his death is enough, and you don't have to add anything else to it. You trust that his way is better than yours, and you repent and follow him. And you choose uh, that he is going to be your Lord and who you follow. If you choose this option, God will not only save you from the wrath that you deserve, but he will also grant you eternal life in heaven with him and will live in your heart starting now to make you more like Jesus, to give you the power to do those things. Or option B, you can refuse. You can say, you know, I don't think I want to be like Jesus. After all, look where it got him, a cross. And you can go your own way. You are free to make that choice. But I want to warn you now that if you make that choice, you're sealing your fate. There is no middle ground. Everyone must choose. Everyone must choose one of those two options. And this is the gospel. This is what we mean when we say the gospel. So I would be remiss if right now I didn't ask, if you want to make that decision, I would love to talk to you about that. 
After the sermon, I'm going to go to the back. You can find me to talk about that. There's also pastors around this room. If you want to talk to someone, you can do that, and we can, this can be the day that you make that decision. But I know for many people in this room, you've already made that decision. So I want to show you how the gospel also transforms the way we look at suffering using these same steps. So I want you to imagine Paul and Silas sitting in that prison cell. It said that they were praying and singing hymns. So imagine them praying through the gospel here. I want to walk you through what that could look like. So first, God created. Imagine Paul and Silas saying, God, you made all the people in the city of Philippi. You made that mayor and gave him power to bring peace to the city. You made that slave girl and you made her masters to give you glory. You made that crowd and gave them voices to praise your name. You made these prisoners here in this jail to, that their deeds would shine among men as an example of your glory. God, you made them and you deserve to be worshipped by them. Second, we sinned. But God, that's not how it was today. Rather than honor us as children in your image, they have humiliated us. Rather than honor the dignity of that slave girl as someone made in your image, as your daughter, they enslaved and exploited her. Rather than profess your truth, they have rejected it and thrown it back for a lie and beaten your messengers. And these men in this prison, you made them for your glory, but they've defied you in their rebellion. But God, if I'm honest, didn't I do the same thing? Paul says. When Stephen tried to share with me didn't I order his death? Did I not revel in my hatred against you, against your son, and use your Bible as a bludgeon? Even now, after experiencing the riches of your kindness, God, I feel the bitterness creep in through my heart. I revile my persecutors, but their sins are less than mine. God, forgive me, the chief of sinners. Third, Jesus saves. But Jesus, you are near to the brokenhearted. You are a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering, and you don't snuff out the smoldering wick or snap the bruised reed. You were reviled, you were crushed, and you were pierced, Jesus. And everything that's happening to me now is something you've already experienced, and you did it all to pay for my sin. And fourth, we respond. Jesus, forgive me for the bitterness in my heart. Forgive that jailer and forgive the prison guard for they don't know what they've done. Show them the same grace that you showed to me. And God, if there's any way that I can be involved, show me how to do that. You see, before God changes our culture, he first has to change us. Suffering is a mirror to see where we're still failing to trust God. It's never pleasant, and yet this is how God shows us where the truths of the gospel still need to work. And we can trust that in the hands of a sovereign God, his purposes for it are still good. And it can do great good in us and in the people around us. Which leads us to our third point, that the gospel changes the world through us. While sometimes it may be weeks or months or years before we see the outcome of our suffering, sometimes in this world, we never get to see the outcome of our suffering we can recognize that sometimes God is gracious to answer those prayers. He's gracious to show us how it has worked. I want to speak to you now. If you're suffering right now and you don't know why, if you're still dealing with the perplexities of that, I want to encourage you that a day is coming when Jesus will make all things right. 
But in the meantime, we can pray that Jesus will make it right in our own eyes so that we can see those results. He's done it before. Let's go back to Paul and Silas, picking back up in verse 25. So they were praying, they were singing hymns, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And after that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. He immediately, and then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So things worked out for Paul and Silas. God did hear their prayers, and that same night, he did free them. He did deliver them from their suffering. And so it's a promise that if you're in the midst of suffering right now, God can deliver you. And I'm assured that at least one day, he will. They left washed, clothed, and fed. And if we were to keep reading in that chapter, we would see that the leaders of the city came, they publicly apologized, and they exonerated them of all the charges. Their reputation was restored as well. So physically, everything, just like Job, was restored. God had made it right. But though their physical fortunes had been restored, God had done something in the interim. In the interim of suffering, God had done something in them. He had made them a little bit more like Jesus. The physical wounds would heal. The mental scars, they were scarred for life by this experience, but their scars now matched their Savior's. Indeed, God used this prison experience to prepare Paul for later when he would face another prison experience, first in Jerusalem and then in Rome. While under house arrest in Rome, Paul would write back to these believers in Philippi, saying, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, his imprisonment, has actually served to advance the gospel here in Rome. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else in the city that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul did it again. He would go on to do the same thing that he did here in Philippi in Rome, in the big leagues, praising God in his chains until the entire royal household had heard the gospel. Paul's life was changed through this experience. But you know, even more than that, you know who else's life was changed that night? For one, the prisoners. I don't know what they had done. I don't know why they're in jail, whether they were violent thugs or whether they were just in the wrong place in the wrong time, like Paul and Silas were. One thing I do know, while Paul and Silas sang and prayed, they listened, and they listened well. 
They were watching how they reacted to suffering, and it changed them. It changed them so much that when those prison doors flew open, not a single one of them, not even the crazy guy in cell 10, not a single one of them wanted to leave. Not a single one of them wanted to leave. I mean, just imagine if that happened here in Kentucky. Imagine if the tornado blew the doors off a max security prison and not a single person left because they loved the prison ministry so much. In fact, they helped, in fact, they helped clean up. The prison ministry was such an encouragement to them. They helped clean up that prison because they don't want to leave it. Just imagine that. Imagine how radical this change is. And if that's what two men transformed by the gospel can do in a medieval dungeon, just imagine what it can do in your workplace. Just imagine what it can do in your family. Just imagine what it can do in this church. Paul and Silas proclaimed the gospel, and they lived consistently with it. And the results changed their world. Church, your fellow inmates in this world are listening and watching your example. Let the truths of the gospel change how you handle adversity, and it will change your world. But you know who was most transformed that night? There was a jailer who woke up that morning. He kissed his wife and kids goodbye, and he walked out the door with too little caffeine for his dead-end job. That afternoon, there was a riot, and he knew this was going to be a long day. And he was given a job, punish these two who started the riot. And like a good, dutiful Roman, he did his job. He put them in the most secure cell. He put them in the stocks himself, made sure they were secure. And who knows, maybe he threw in his own little beating and taunting to them. He was just doing his job. But then came that restless night, because all night long, after a long afternoon, those two wouldn't shut up. They just kept singing, and it was the most joyful song he had ever heard, more than any of the festival songs that he had used to dance to. He kept trying to drown it out. He kept trying to go to different parts of the jail, but no matter what he did, down those stone hallways kept echoing the same name of this foreign god, Jesus. And all the while came that gnawing sense in his heart that he was the one in the wrong. And he wrestled with it. No, I'm a Roman. I'm doing my duty. I can't be in the wrong. And yet, hour after hour, it gnawed. The guilt gnawed at his soul until finally, emotionally and physically exhausted, he sat down and nodded off to sleep. Then for the second time that day, he woke up, this time to the terrifying jolt of an earthquake and the horror of realizing that he had fallen asleep on the job. He had failed in his duty. And all at once, that guilt compounded. Surely this earthquake was a punishment from this foreign god, Jesus. His conscience was right. And as he saw those prison doors dangle on their hinges, he thought, "Uh uh-oh. This is the wrath of Jesus, and now I'm about to face the wrath of Rome. I'm about to die. This dead-end job would end in death. And then he remembers from his childhood the story of Lucretia, who saved her honor by taking her own life. And so he draws his sword and holds it to his chest, thinking, this is how I'll save my honor. This is how I'll save myself from crucifixion. If I do this now, then I'll be forgiven. And it's in that moment that he realized that his sins deserved death. But just before that dagger plunged, he heard the words of grace that he never expected to hear. Don't hurt yourself. We're all still here. And then for the third time that day, this jailer woke up. 
this time from death to eternal life. He heard the message of a God who bore the death and the wrath on his behalf and defeated death on his behalf. That grace broke through, and now there was no more torment in his soul. There was no more confusion. Forget Rome. They can kill my body, but they can't kill my soul. That's safe with the God who lives forever. So he took Paul and Silas out of that prison and did what he knew was right. He washed their wounds, and he asked them to pray for him and to lead him to salvation. And now, just like Paul and Silas, he couldn't shut up about what God had done in his life. He had to tell everyone. It's midnight. He goes and wakes up his kids, wakes up his wife, wakes up his servants, and tells them about what God has done in his life. And guess what? The evidence of a changed life in him was enough that that whole household came to believe, and they were all saved, even his mother-in-law. You see, this lion was now... This lion was now on the side of Jesus. <laughs> there it is. Uh, there it is. This lion who had roared against the church was now roaring the praises of Jesus in Philippi. And this was the birth of a church, the Philippian church, to whom the letter of Philippians was written. If you read the book of Philippians, it's one of the most encouraging books in the New Testament because of the encouragement that this jailer and his family brought in creating a church that welcomed and celebrated through suffering. Looking back on this jailer from a different prison cell, Paul would write, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Church, I don't want you to be under any delusions. In this world, we will have trouble. We follow a crucified Savior. And whether it's the pressures of the world on the church in general, or the pressures on your life in particular from Satan himself, suffering is coming. How foolish would we be to face it in our own strength? But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. It's through suffering that God completes the work that he began in you when you first believed and conforms you to the image of his son that makes you more like Jesus. And if you'll let him do that work, it can be the way that he changes the world around you. And now, as we do every week, we have a chance to remember the suffering that Jesus went through to change us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread And he broke it and gave thanks and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing Lord the Lord's death until he returns. Church, we worship a broken Savior. Yet he didn't stay broken. He was raised up. And as surely as Jesus lives, he will raise you up as well. And we get to announce that a day is coming when Jesus will do just that. He is returning. Uh, as after I pray, we're going to come forward and take of the communion. If you have been, a, if you believe in Christ and you've been baptized, we would invite you come 
take of the bread and of the cup. Remember that Jesus' death. We celebrate by dipping the bread in the cup. If you believe in Jesus but you've not been baptized, we would ask that you would identify with Christ first by being buried into his death and raised to life in his newness of life through baptism. And if today you do not believe in Jesus, if you've not made that decision to follow him, I have good news. That decision is open to you today. You can choose to follow him for the first time today. Bread and, bread and juice aren't going to help you, but Jesus can. So church, with that in mind, let's pray. Lord, our lives are filled with trials, but you are not unfamiliar with them. God, you know our trials. You know the things that we're going through in this room. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are suffering, that you would grant them the comfort of knowing that they're being made into your image through it. Lord, we pray selfishly that you would allow us to see the fruits of our suffering in this life and soon. And Lord, we pray for deliverance, but more importantly, God, we pray for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified through our lives as we are transformed to be more like you. And that's in your name we pray.